This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. From an introduction like that, I can really only disappoint. But uh, I do want to thank, uh, first of all, Catherine for inviting me and, and Alex for hosting me. It's a great pleasure being back here. And, uh, you know, Max is one of my old teachers. He was the one telling me at the time of doing my MSc, I really thought, you know, I'd, I'd have to go and actually save the world. And uh, I was strolling together with Matt, and we, I think we were grabbing a coffee uh, in Little Clarendon Street. He was saying, you know, Thomas people like you and me, we belong behind a desk. (laughs) (laughs) So you had it your way. I became an academic. I did a PhD and and now I'm stuck behind my desk. Um, But it doesn't mean that you all have to be. And uh, honestly, I think the, well, also in that sense, of course, but my year at the RSC was probably one of the most formative. Um, But as I said, back to my talk, um, I've chosen a topic uh, today, which will, will give me a chance to bring a little bit of both sides to the equation, as Alex was mentioning. Um, but it is kind of coming very much from international law, so I, I apologise in advance to sort of... And I was sort of not quite knowing exactly how many lawyers would be here vis-a-vis others. So. But, as we all know, um, wealthy estates have a near obsession with border control, spending billions of dollars every year in the hope of securing their external frontiers. The objective, of course, is not to prevent the entry of all um, states at the same time compete to attract those that they think can contribute in the form of tourism, um, trade or the provision of labour. But the uninvited, including most unskilled and humanitarian migrants, are not welcome. In truth, of course, there's no clear and easy formula by which to realise this policy outcome. The financial stakes involved have produced a never-ending race between border authorities and migrant smugglers, uh, ever more inventive. And for each loophole that seems to be closed by officials, two new modes of irregular entry seems to emerge. And there's moreover a real difficulty in separating out those who fall into the favoured and disfavoured categories. Perhaps most significantly, migration control is hampered by the fact that states have agreed by law to invite some of those or to protect or grant access to some of those uninvited. Refugees and some others hold a trump card on migration control. They are entitled to arrive without permission and to be protected for the duration of risk. This duty to protect refugees poses a particular challenge to border control in that refugee status does not follow from formalities but from the fact of a relevant risk of persecution. Second, core duties owed to refugees, including to respect the norm of non-refoulement, arise even before any formal asylum procedure is engaged. Third and finally, the principle of non-refoulement is a robust obligation, meaning that it prohibits return in any manner whatsoever of any person who claim asylum or can be seen to be a refugee, unless that person is fairly determined not in fact to meet the refugee definition. As such refugee law requires border officials immediately to carve out the refugee category as an exception to any generalised policy of exclusion. The central answer of developed states to this dilemma is the politics of non-entree. 
Over the last three decades, the governments of industrialised countries have instituted a series of policies that seek to keep most refugees from accessing their territory. The supposed beauty of non-entree policies is that they seem to insulate developed countries from the duty of non-refoulement, even as it leaves the duty itself intact. It allows the wealthier states to insist upon the importance of refugee protection as a matter of international legal obligation, knowing full well that they themselves would largely be spared its burdens. The continued attachment of the developed world to refugee law can thus be seen for what it really is, a pattern of minimalist engagement intended primarily to ensure that the less developed world does not resile from its present inordinate burdens and responsibilities under the global refugee protection regime. In truth, the stance of the developed world is obviously duplicitous. Duty to protect refugees, if in fact a general international legal obligation, should be implemented in good faith by all. It is one thing to acknowledge that accidents of geography mean that the less developed world is likely to continue to receive the majority of the world's refugees. It is another thing entirely actively to exacerbate that maldistribution of responsibility. International law, however, can play, and have in some instances already played, a critical role in engendering a more forthright conversation among states about the means by which the burdens and responsibilities of refugee protection should be shared out. And in my talk today, which is based on both my own previous work and some work in progress with another refugee lawyer, namely James Hathaway, I'll attempt to do three things. First, I want to make an empirical claim that we are seeing the emergence of a new generation of non-entree policies. Policies largely based on international cooperation that threaten to further undermine international refugee protection. Secondly, I'm going to argue that despite the advanced attempts of these policies to eclipse refugee obligations, there are key developments in international law, in particular in the law on jurisdiction and the law on state responsibility, that threaten to undermine the legality of many, if not all, of these new types of non-entree. And third and last, I think it's important to realise that the politics and law of non-entree work against each other. The more preferred non-entree policies seem to be those that grant the sponsoring state some degree of direct authority over how control is enforced. Yet, as international law has developed, these measures are exactly the ones that entail the highest likelihood of triggering refugees uh, and human rights obligations. As a result, states are likely to face a trade-off, or what you could say is a catch-22 situation, which may hopefully force a more honest conversation about these policies and the effect for refugees at large. So to start with, I wanted to sort of review the history of non-entree. Efforts to prevent refugees from arriving or accessing asylum procedures are, of course, nothing new. As early as the 18th century, countries such as Denmark have fined shipmasters for bringing in unwanted migrants, at the time mainly Jews. The modern inclinations, however, have emerged from the 1980s. They include procedural mechanisms such as safe third country clauses, safe country of origin clauses, something that in Europe was renowned as the Danish clause. Again, you see that Denmark sets a rather horrible precedent. Um, and they include, secondly, the kind of visa and carrier controls that have been imposed to prevent refugees from lawfully reaching state territory by air. 
Third, we've seen that airports, harbours and indeed entire coastlines and islands have been declared to be non-territory for the purposes of protection responsibilities. And fourth and finally, states have resorted to maritime interceptions on the high seas in an effort to take action in places thought not to attract legal liability. However, over the past two decades, both the effectiveness and legality of at least some of the traditional non-entre practices have been increasingly challenged. If we look at something like the combination of visa controls and carrier sanctions, these obviously remain common. Yet this approach may now be less capable of deterring refugees than was once the case. As we see, so-called human smugglers respond by developing increasingly sophisticated technology and by bribing immigration officials. To some extent, the same could be said for high seas interception. Uh, we've seen a quite clear path, at least in the European context, that for every time new operations are installed, routes tend to shift um, and, and develop in other places. Equally, however, both maritime interception and other classic non-entre measures have been met with legal challenges. We've seen that designation of airports and existing of coastal zones. So in Europe, we've got cases like Amour versus France, clearly saying that an international airport or the international zone of an international airport, despite its name, is every bit as much national territory as the rest of the country. Similarly, the Australian High Court struck down uh, the Australian government's claim that they could excise and prevent access to courts and procedural rights relating to refugee status determination uh, in part of the excise territory of the coastlines and northern islands. In the case of high seas, domestic courts, most notably the US Supreme Court, has originally upheld some of these policies. I'm thinking about the infamous Sailor decision. But this is a ruling that has since been broadly rejected, and a string of cases have emerged in their stead to support that states do in fact retain core obligations as part of high seas operations. Most important and probably most recent of these is the Hersey case, uh, which related directly to Italy's deal with Libya to stop and return all migrants before arriving to Italy. And Hersey also shot down another widely used strategy, which we could call regime shopping namely that reference to another legal obligation in another legal regime, in this case Law of the Sea and the related rules relating to search and rescue, could be used as pretext for abandoning obligations under international human rights law. So at this stage we could sort of say problem solved. The problem is not quite. Because rather than simply abandoning their commitment to non-entree, States have instead embraced a new generation of deterrent regimes intended to overcome at least the legal objections to the original generation of non-entry practices. Much, if not most, of the work of deterrence today is now designed in a way that takes place under the jurisdiction of poorer states of origin and transit, which for economic, political or other reasons are often willing to serve as the gatekeepers to the developed world. In these cases, the underlying assumption is that these interstate arrangements somehow allow developed states to insulate themselves from liability by engaging the sovereignty and hence sovereign responsibility of another country. So this new generation of non-entry policies that depend on the integration of migration control into the mainstream of foreign policy, I think this is an important point that really speaks across disciplines as well. 
You could see this emerge in the late 90s onwards. In the United States with the Merida Initiative and Operation Global Reach in 1997, uh, reaching out to Mexico and a number of other Central American countries. In Australia, obviously with the Pacific Solution from 2001, today reinvigorate and constantly taking new shapes. And in the European context with the introduction of the external dimension to EU's asylum and immigration policies in the TAMPRA program in 1999, something that's only expanded in subsequent political programs. And diversity of the new approaches of cooperation-based non-entree is astonishing, ranging from simple diplomatic agreements to full-scale joint <coughs> operations to effect migration control. If we want to sort of try and, and organize this, taking a, into account the extent of the sponsoring state involvement, I think it's possible to identify seven distinct topologies. The first on your left is something like diplomatic cooperation. This is an area where the EU is particularly engaged due to its big negotiation power in the area of development aid and in regard to accession countries. Secondly, you've got situations where, and I should underline that these are not mutually exclusive, you've got situations where the sponsoring states provide direct financial incentives. Thus, under the U.S. Merida Initiative, more than 1.4 billion U.S. dollars have been allocated to improve border security in Mexico and Central America. Similarly, in 2009, Italy pledged $5 billion in contracts to Libya, something that was to pay it out over 20 years. So I think they, they got off a lot cheaper. The third category is the provision of equipment um, and, and training. There you see that countries such as Italy have been providing radars and scanners to Libya. European-funded private security companies have been setting out biometric uh, border control equipment, on the, for example, on the border between Russia and Ukraine, thus far from the EU external borders itself. And in Australia, uh, you've got training programs for both Indonesian and Sri Lankan border officials. Actually, they're carried out in Indonesia and Sri Lanka. Um, and the U.S. has started a permanent training program for Mexican border officials in Houston that's been operating since 2010. And moving along the sort of scales again, the, the next step um, in, in this context would be the deployment of actual immigration officials. Um, and you see immigration liaison officers uh, advising or assisting either local authorities or private airlines. The U.S. has a presence in 47 countries, Australia, last time I checked, had airline officials in about 12 foreign airports. The EU operates a similar immigration liaison officer network, um, spanning I don't know how many countries, actually. Fifth, we've got the kind of direct in enforcement. In these situations, access is negotiated for the sponsoring states to exercise some kind of direct or immediate enforcement powers within the territory or territorial waters of another state. Um, negotiating this kind of access is something that UK started out getting, installing um, pre-inspection scans, I think it was called, at Prague Airport. Something that Spain and Italy ha has, has pursued in, in regard to North African and West African territorial waters, getting their ships into the territorial waters of another state. Fifth, we've got the kind of joint or shared migration control. In this case, we've seen, for example, U.S.-Mexican authorities collaborate on, on operational missions to 
basically uh, deter what they claim to be more than 100,000 migrants and apprehend them. Uh, in some cases, you take on what's called shipwriters on board sponsoring ships. So Spain would have a Senegalese or Mauritanian officer on board their vessels and claim that this was in fact a joint operation or that they would indeed have the main power since this was taking place inside Mauritanian or Senegalese territorial waters. And in these cases, migrants and refugees have been returned without any kind of examination of their uh, human rights claims. We also see it within Europe, of course, these kind of joint operations. And I'm thinking particularly about the EU Frontex, the border agency regulation called RAPID, which provides for border guard for more than 24 countries residing and patrolling armed and in direct enforcement capacity on the very same stretch of land along the Ebrus River in Greece. And finally, we may be seeing situations where migration control is entrusted more directly to international agencies. Frontex has so far, uh, or at least traditionally, been taking on a coordination role for the sort of primacy of member state enforcement. But its mandate has gradually been expanded, so it's now allowed to deploy its own immigration officers in third states and to initiate joint operations. You could, down the road, imagine something similar in Australia where things like the Bali process, which is so far just a political framework, but which is spearheaded or at least coordinated by the IOM, could similarly develop operational capacities. And the truly pernicious nature of all of these forms of non-entree, especially clear when you consider that they often target countries that are not legally bound to protect refugees. Neither Libya nor Indonesia, for example, is a party to the Refugee Convention. And even when formally bound by refugee law, many of the favoured partner states have no national procedure in place to assess refugee status or the de facto capacity to or will to ensure respect for refugee rights. The question to which I now turn is whether the assumption upon which this new generation of cooperative non-entree mechanism is based are legally sound. I believe that different developments in international law clearly challenge the legality of many of these new policies. And the first of these concerns the law and jurisdiction in international human rights law. It is generally accepted today that the non-refoulement principle, as enshrined in both the Refugee Convention and a number of other human rights instruments, apply wherever a state exercises jurisdiction. And while jurisdiction is often just synonymous with territory, a significant body of human rights case law has emerged over the last decades to establish human rights responsibility in a range of situations where states act extraterritorially. And from the case law, you could identify what I see as three different models for establishing extraterritorial jurisdiction. First is territorial and relates to case of military occupations, not very relevant for our purposes. I'm just going to skip right past that. But the personal model, which is the second, uh, is, is clearly relevant and obviously catches certain of these new non-entry practices. This body of case law says that wherever there is a sufficient degree of physical control, say border guards apprehending or detaining migrants or refugees, the state's jurisdiction would be triggered. Secondly, a state's jurisdiction would also be triggered where persons are brought on board patrolling vessels or where authorities bought and take control over migrant vessels. In other words, there's nothing to suggest that the Hersey principle is limited to the high sea, even if this is the argument made by some governments. 
What is being debated, however, is whether this line of jurisprudence also covers situations where authorities do not apprehend or arrest a suspect, for example, sort of the simple rejection of onward travel. And the UK and, and Dutch government say no, but a number of cases seem to suggest otherwise, and we've seen sort of a more recent set of outlier cases, namely Pat, Isaac, and from the Inter-American Court, an old one, namely Brothers to the Rescue. The third model, and I put a question mark because this is really more tentatively, may be identified based on a limited set of cases, principally Alskaini, which was a grand chamber case before the European Court of Human Rights from 2011. This approach reflects the situation that where a state exercises public powers under some kind of agreement or legal base under customary international law within the territory of another state, that may in itself trigger jurisdiction. The basic principle here is that de jure power entails human rights responsibility. If an agreement or other legal base is existent, two, it can be identified as an exercise of public power, and I would argue that all migration control per definition is. And third, that the conduct can be clearly attributed, i.e. that a real link exists, and it, the harm incurred is directly related to the extraterritorial acting state. Then the state's jurisdiction and human rights obligations are triggered. So this is a much more functional approach, which doesn't really link directly to the individual person or to control over a wider set of territory, and where it's also possible to sort of delimit based on different competences. This is something that would be clearly become important. But I say tentatively because there is some disagreement as to whether this is indeed a third model of jurisdiction. I've said the quote here from Elskaini, which I think is quite clear, um, but it has been argued that this is really a variant of the territorial model, i.e. that you would need to also be an occupation, occupying power, uh, which the UK was in this case. It concerned Iraq. Um, secondly, there's also some resistance, interestingly, from human rights lawyers. Um, there are several who oppose to this notion because all the others, the personal and the territorial cases, really come back to de facto control. And there is a certain concern that if you would kind of recognize that human rights obligation hinge on some kind of formal recognition or pre-existing agreement to exercise such powers and international law, you would have an argument for limiting obligations rather to expand them. I think personally that this is a problem. I mean, this is not a solid uh, or sound mean of reasoning. Basically, what some of these people, someone like Marko Milanovic or Dapo Kanda are saying, is that it's an either-or, that any kind of deference to public international law in this context is the same as giving in to a sovereigntist or sovereignty principles which gets you back to territory. I think what the court said in Elskane is quite the opposite, that there is an additional mode of, or, or avenue to establish jurisdiction that doesn't hinge on the first two. But this will all be tested soon. There's a pending case, a Dutch case, before uh, the European Court, and, and there will be a grand chamber decision on it very, very soon. The oral hearings have already been, been set. And this is set to basically test this premise. Obviously, again, something that will have big political implications. The European Court is under substantial political pressure at the moment, and whether they have the guts to uphold their line of jurisprudence and the entire 
indeed the entire line of jurisprudence on extraterritorial jurisdiction has been subject to a lot of criticism both from academic and political sides it's going to be very interesting but I do think it, it sets itself out there I also do think it's very very consonant with the kind of thinking that we see under general international law it's not like the two previous ones are sort of that different from the way that a public international lawyer would think about enforcement jurisdiction, namely that international law recognises that you get sovereign title if you are an effective occupying power. This is indeed the definition of sovereignty under international law. Um, and the second one, namely that if you have flag state jurisdiction under, over a maritime vessel or military base or an embassy, certain responsibilities would follow from that and you would have enforcement jurisdictions in that sense as well. Now, if the public powers model was to be applied, um, and I do hope it will, it would have large implications, I think, in particular for migration control because unlike something like drone strikes, which is what a lot of people are concerned about when we're talking about something like this, you can hardly think of a situation in which some kind of agreement for one state to exercise migration control powers within the territory of another state is not premised on a pre-existing agreement. I mean, that would simply be unheard of. So you would normally have some kind of treaty, as you had between Italy and Libya, or at least some kind of informal agreement, and that would indeed be enough under this definition, such as a memorandum of understanding or some kind of technical cooperation basis under which these powers were enforced. So if we think about the situation that would be captured here, you could say that, well, as soon as you have some kind of agreement, and as soon as you could say that and a refoulement situation pertains directly to the authorities of the extraterritorially acting states, that would indeed itself be enough to trigger jurisdiction. There's some secondary questions opening up that I'm not going to go into, but I'm happy to elaborate on in, in the discussion, namely to say, well, if we think about this as in terms of functional powers, it also means that you don't necessarily have to respect the entire panoply of convention rights. That's not a problem under refugee law where you only have a limited number of rights apply extraterritorially in the first instance. But it's a big discussion in the case of international human rights law where this notion that convention rights can be tailored and divided has been very divisive. The second issue, of course, is that, well, in most of these situations, um, there'll be another state that can be set to have territorial jurisdiction and hence incur human rights responsibility as well. So, so far, we've been thinking about this from the perspective of, say, a European or a US or an Australian state moving its powers outside. But what do you do in the kind of situations where you could reasonably say that more than one state have uh, jurisdiction? And traditionally, because it was thought that jurisdiction was an all-or-nothing proposition, the notion of shared responsibility between two or more states was thought to be implausible. In other words, there would have to be a winner. The argument has been used by governments in cases of migration control that since another state has the territorial jurisdiction, they have the primary and, in effect, only responsibility. And indeed, early case law, for example, the Hess case, which involved the former Nazi leader, which was held in Spandau prison, effectively governed by four powers, supported this claim. Again, however, looking to both developments in international human rights law and general international law, this line of thinking is very hard to sustain today. 
our world today is rife with examples where more than one state shares or have overlapping jurisdiction. Just think about the situation under the law of the sea or something like the EU, where there's a functional division of competences between states and indeed, in this case, an international organisation. And in Alskania, again, the European Court clearly overturning past or previous jurisprudence, uh, especially the Bankovic case, for the first time held that obligations under the Convention could be divided and tailored. We can also identify a number of cases where more than one state has been established to have jurisdiction simultaneously, notably in the case of Jane Ruffelmung, of course, but also at the same time, namely in the cases such as Alaska, where Russia and Moldova were held to be jointly accountable, um, and in other cases where it was simply indicated, there's a case called Savara, which was before the European Commission, in which it was noted that jurisdiction was shared in this case of cooperation on migration control between Italy and Albania. And much the same conclusion can be reached by looking to general international law. The principle of joint and shared responsibility means that where two or more states are responsible for the same international wrongful acts, the responsibility of each state is determined individually on the basis of its own conduct and international obligations. And attempts to sort of move out of this line of regions or to avoid incurring obligations by referring to other states' presence have been firmly rejected, most notably in the Nauru case, incidentally, since it was also used as part of the Pacific Solution, um, where Australia uh, did not get away with, with making this argument before the International Court of Justice. Third and finally, we may consider the situation where involvement of the sponsoring state falls short of establishing jurisdiction. So even under this expanded notion of or notions of jurisdiction, or even under the acceptance that more than one state can be jointly liable, there can be situations where the kind of involvement under this seven type topology is simply not enough to trigger uh, the sponsoring state's direct obligations. I'm thinking about cases where, say, a sponsoring state may only provide financial or material support, such as border control equipment or training, i.e. don't ever actually have a physical presence within the territory. Such cases, even within the most sort of expanded notion of jurisdiction, it's going to be very, very hard to make a claim for direct responsibility of this uh, sponsoring state. So, does this mean that because there's no jurisdiction, there can be no responsibility? And again, the answer is no. Uh, recourse may be had to general international law, and indeed the notion of complicity. The law and state responsibility provides that states may be held independently responsible when they support or act in complicity with another state violating international law. This is most clearly set out in the International Law Commission's Articles on State Responsibility, Article 16, which you can read. This is not a binding document, but it does purport to set out a principle of customary international law. And specifically, Article 16 has been referred to by the International Court of Justice as sustaining a principle of customary international law. If you go by this formulation, however, the bar is set rather high. And some have indeed criticised this formulation for setting the bar way too high for when you trigger complicity of one state for aiding or assisting another. So it requires not only that the state provide some kind of material aid or assistance in committing e.g. refoulement, it also requires that the sponsoring state does so knowingly and that both states remain under the same international obligation. 
So the potential for slippage here is quite obvious. States may refuse that they have knowledge of specific incidents concerning refoulement or that there were refugees among those rejected. Or cooperation may exactly be sought out with states not bound by the Refugee Convention, as has been the case, because indeed, under this definition, both states have to be under the same obligation under international law. It's not enough that only the sponsoring state is abides by, by say, the non-refoulement principle. Yet, perhaps due to domestic political concerns, so far governments engaging in these kind of schemes have been surprisingly open about their intentions and outright and forthrightly argue that this is intended to curb refugees arriving. Similarly, to the extent that the non-refoulement principle is accepted a customary international law, there's really no escape by picking out non-signatory countries. And even if it isn't, you could probably craft an argument that any kind of non-refoulement obligations would constitute an obligations in pari materia, i.e. a similar basis for responsibility. But it should be noted, however, that the concept or principle of complicity has yet to be adopted in human rights case law. Attention to this area and this whole notion of shared responsibility and complicity has, however, been growing very quickly in the recent years, and I expect that it could soon find its way into human rights jurisprudence, not just in the context of non-entree, but in the context of any kind of situation involving interstate cooperation. So, to conclude, what we see is that states willing to engage in this sort of creative legal thinking have been able, by and large, to block refugees by designing policies to shift or circumvent legal obligations otherwise owed. And along with other issues where states similarly engage in these kind of offshore outsourcing processes, the current globalisation of non-entree policies in that sense constitute a kind of unforeseen dark side to the otherwise sort of very liberal and, and, and bright notion of international law of cooperation that someone like Wolfgang Friedman has been purported in which states seem to pitch treaty law against each other in order to maximize and recoup political power. Yet, if non-entree has been evolving, so has international law. Human rights law may have been slow in responding to some of these new political practices, but it is clearly getting there, as the case law and jurisdiction shows. In the end, then, the new generation of non-entree mechanisms may thus face much the same fate as its predecessor. At least once present developments on both shared jurisdiction and complicity are firmly established, states will be legally barred from effectuating the deterrent of refugees by means most of these kinds of international cooperation. So where's all this going? I mean, one way to look at this could, of course, be to see a kind of co-evolution between law and policy and argue that, well, it may be that we then block the next generation of non-entree mechanisms, but it would, in effect, only trigger further creative legal thinking, a further refining of policies of this kind. One avenue to pursue even further, and, and it is indeed rife today, would be privatisation, for example. Or you could simply, if we go back, I don't know if you can do that, yeah, go back here, sort of try and stay down and these earlier steps of the equation or sort of the kind of direct enforcement degree in the kind of non-entree topologies here. If we accept that jurisdiction might get to capture most of these cases and indeed complicity eventually get us to at least take on some of the other ones, we could imagine states trying to retrieve themselves down here. 
there are several reasons you could imagine, however, that this somehow sort of game of cat and mouse is, however, not necessarily going to play out this way. The first one is simply practical. Um, the transit or state of origins are becoming much better at playing this game. There's some evidence to suggest that the price is going up in terms of what you have to pay to get these kind of deals, and that especially more sort of affluent countries like Turkey or indeed Libya, at least under Gaddafi, was very, very good at playing the game and constantly demanding new uh, concessions, either monetary, fiscal, or in terms of development, labor migration quotas, etc. Also, there's a certain mimicry effect here. So once you engage in these kind of policies, that especially the transit states will typically be forced to replicate the very same policies and often seek the assistance of the sponsoring state in trying to negotiate them. So a country like Morocco will try and get EU's help to negotiate its own agreements with its southern neighbours to insulate it further. And there's obviously a kind of limit to how far this can proceed, at least until then where we don't have refugees but only IDPs left. Thirdly, however, um, and, and this is sort of where, again, the law and politics of non-entry comes together, there might be a trade-off here. What we can see is that there typically is a trajectory from the left to the right. And the few interviews I've been doing with officials seem to suggest that states are very keen, or governments are very keen not to lose the efficiency of direct control. By moving towards the right of this spectrum, you're trying to gain a more direct control rather than outsourcing migration completely to third state authorities. And since this is a politically sensitive issue, there's going to be a natural move towards that end of the spectrum. However, as the legal analysis shows, it is exactly once you move into the kind of direct enforcement presence, joint operations, or at least get some kind of presence on the ground of a third state, that you are more likely to be captured by existing jurisprudence on extraterritorial jurisdiction. And indeed, the complicity example would kind of make that move continue towards this end of the spectrum. So what you see here is, is two opposing trends and potentially a catch-22 situation where states are forced to choose between the kind of efficiency ambition which drives the emergence and, and continuing development of non-entry policies in the first place and their ability to avoid legal obligations. Probably not a perfect relationship, but an interesting thing to, to speculate about. And the wonder, of course, is whether or not the combination of practical concerns, fiscal concerns, the sort of fundamental issues here, and indeed the gameplay of law and politics can somehow provide a hope that the conversion of law and politics in the area can help stop this onwards development and hopefully force a more honest discussion about the distribution of refugee responsibilities. Thank you very much. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.